the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, this August 15th edition. We're going to be talking with James Spencer. He's the president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of a new devotional, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And we'll also look back one year. That's uh, how long it has been since the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan. We'll see how things stand today on August the 15th. 2022. Well, taking a quick look at, uh, well, maybe not so quick, look at the headlines. Unaffiliated candidate Betsy Johnson announced today that she has, in fact, gathered the requisite number of signatures to make her bid for Oregon governor official and appear on the November ballot alongside Democrat Tina Kotek and Republican Christine Drazen. Now, one would have assumed she was already on the ballot, but she's been vigorously campaigning from the very beginning. Well, major party candidates for Oregon governor compete in primary elections to secure their party's nomination for the general election. But candidates who are not affiliated with any party can also appear on the November ballot if they gather enough voter signatures. Well, that is her effort. Under Oregon law, that requisite number of signatures is equal to 1% of the number of voters cast in the most recent presidential election in the state, which in this case is 23,744. Well, in a press release, uh, her campaign said that she would deliver well over that number to the Secretary of State's office tomorrow. The signatures must be verified by the office's elections division by the 30th of this month for Johnson to qualify. She announced her candidacy last fall. She's been running a technically unofficial but nonetheless full bore campaign all year, including major fundraising, frequent public appearances and a slew of online and TV ads. She's been included in debates, for example. There haven't been many, but she's been one of the three. It was widely expected that she would be able to meet the signature threshold, and the race for governor has been consistently described as a three-way contest following Kotek and Drazen's um, primary election victories, even though Johnson had not yet formally qualified. Well, Johnson previously served in the Oregon State Senate as a Democrat, but chose to take the non-affiliated route in her run for governor, seeking to position herself as a centrist alternative to what she's characterized as the extreme positions of her two major opponents and the two major political parties they represent. Her campaign has attracted significant financial support, raising more than $7 million this year, including large individual donations from uh, big uh, big names here in the state of Oregon. Um, Nike co-founder Phil Knight, heavy equipment company, the Pape Group. Uh, Tina Kotek, she previously served as Oregon House Speaker. Christine Drazen, she served as Oregon House Minority Leader. All three candidates resigned from their legislative positions last year or earlier this year to focus on their campaigns for governor. So essentially you have two Democrats and a Republican, one of whom, Betsy Johnson, has uh, stepped away from her party and is running as uh, unaffiliated, though she served in the legislature as 
a Democrat. So she will turn in the signatures on Tuesday and presumably will be on the November ballot. The House passed a huge spending and tax bill expanding the size of the Internal Revenue Service and green energy handouts. The president, who is away from Washington at at this moment, is expected to sign on to that legislation as early as tomorrow. On a party line vote, the House narrowly passed the seven hundred and thirty seven billion dollar measure on Friday. It dramatically expands green energy subsidies and health care programs while nearly doubling the size of the Internal Revenue Service. Well, as Republicans decried the inclusion of about $740 billion in new tax revenues, the bill that the Democrats dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act cleared the House at 542 by a vote of 220 to 207 along party lines on Friday. Four Republicans didn't vote. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the result and said the motion is adopted, spurring cheers from fellow Democrats, all of whom voted for the tax and spend package. The vote followed hours of debate. Today, we make good on our promise to take on uh, take on climate change and climate justice with historic investment in green technology that will cut carbon emissions by 40 percent by 2030, at least on paper, create over nine million good paying jobs, put 60 billion dollars into environmental justice and cut energy costs for the average American family by almost a thousand dollars a year. That was a uh, quote from Representative Pramila Jayapal, the Democrat from Washington, in remarks on the House floor. For the first time, we take on big pharma price gouging, finally allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. She went on to say she was first elected in 2016. She um, chairs the House Progressive Caucus. The Senate voted uh, Sunday evening, also along party lines, to pass the passage package, rather, which the president uh, has said he will sign. Representative Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, accused the House Democrats of having unicorn uh, energy policies, saying my colleagues now today are going to uh, dump hundreds of billions of dollars into corporate America, screwing over the American people every single day with tax audits, increased energy prices and increased taxes. Congratulations. Take that to the polls. The bill allocates $79.6 billion to expand the Internal Revenue Service to boost revenue to pay for Democrats' pet programs. Estimates show that 57.3% of the Treasury Department's estimated 86,852 new IRS agents, or fewer than 50,000, would be assigned to tax enforcement. That calculation is based on the $45.6 billion of the $79.6 billion Uh, increase for the IRS being dedicated to enforcement activities. The president and other Democrats have urged that no American making less than $400,000 per year would be audited by the IRS. And although the president and Democrats assert that no one earning less than that amount a year will face new taxes, other analysts project that the bill will, in fact, impose a $4,500 tax increase on the average American over the next decade. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we'll talk about former President Trump, who gave his first interview since the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. Now, one side calls it a raid. Some say that that's the wrong word for it. Nonetheless, you know what we're referring to. The president, former president, has uh, vowed to help the country. So we'll talk more about that and some other elements surrounding what can be uh, considered a very confusing series of events. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back to listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I failed to mention in the opening segment today that t- today happens to be a very special day. Yes, it's the one-year anniversary of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's not it. It's also a beautiful, sunshiny day in the, you know, middle, late summer. It also happens to be, I just learned moments ago, Sam Maupin's birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday, Sam. Thank you very much. It feels special. And this is your, what, 75th birthday? Yeah, totally. Um, about <laughs> 32nd, but feels that way a little bit. <laughs> 32nd birthday. I have a vague recollection of 32. Anyway, happy birthday. And again, Sam, of course, is the engineer of today's program. Well, it seems a bit like Twilight Zone these days. If you follow the headlines, you don't know who's on top, who's on bottom, whether decisions that are being made are just or they're politically motivated. In that whole soup of um, of ideas, former President Donald Trump gave his first interview since the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid, vowing to help the country. The former president, in an exclusive interview since the uh, uh, the visit from the FBI to his home last week, said the temperature has to be brought down while stressing that the American people are not going to stand for any scam, for another scam. Well, the former president said that he will do whatever he can to help the country after the FBI raid of his home last week, telling Fox News Digital that the temperature has to be brought down while stressing that the American people are pretty put out. In an exclusive interview, um, his first since the raid, he said that he had uh, his representatives reach out to the Justice Department to offer to help amid outrage over the FBI's unprecedented raid on his private residence last week in which agents seized classified records, including some marked as top secret. Trump is disputing the classification of those records, saying the records had been declassified. The country is in a very dangerous position. There is tremendous anger like I've never seen before over all the scams and this one, years of scams and witch hunts. And now this, Trump went on to say, if there's anything we can do to help, I and my people would certainly be willing to do that. Meanwhile, the Justice Department is opposed to releasing the affidavit underlying the FBI raid, which would Give sort of the backstory. The department filed a motion on Monday opposing the release of the affidavit underlying the FBI's search warrant for the former president. If disclosed, the affidavit would serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation, providing specific details about its direction and likely course in a manner that is highly likely to compromise future investigative steps. Well, it's precisely those facts that have gotten many people very upset. Is this really about documents that the president should not have had in his possession? He was in communication about said documents. He had put locks on the doors as as um, uh, described and said that they were um, uh, certainly welcome to take them at any time. So there's some dispute over whether or not that was, in fact, the case. Well, the fact that the investigation implicates highly classified materials further underscores the need to protect the integrity of the investigation. And the FBI went on to say exacerbating the, the potential for harmful information is disclosed to the public prematurely and improperly. So the roadmap uh, to the government's ongoing investigation, providing details about the direction and likely course. Again, there's some question as to whether or not this has to do with documents or the January 6th investigation in a manner that is highly likely to compromise future investigative uh, steps. So a lot of questions unanswered. Um, The affidavit could answer some of those questions, but the agency suggests that that would not be in the investigation's best interest 
So I suppose this high level of angst will continue for some time to come. Meanwhile, a former federal prosecutor, Andy McCarthy, analyzed the fallout from the FBI raid on the Trump home. The former federal prosecutor shared his legal analysis um, of the uh, events, saying the issue here is not whether Trump had a right to have those documents down in Mar-a-Lago. He didn't under the Presidential Records Act. He said that the issue is because the Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute, whether they should have raised this to DEFCON 5 and sent the FBI with a search warrant to get the stuff out of his home, end quote. So I think that's what incenses uh, lots of people who observed, not to mention the history of the FBI and the previous administration and the fact that much of what they said and did during that time has since been discredited. Meanwhile, the former president says the FBI seized three of his passports during that raid. Um, wow. In the raid by my by the FBI at Mar- of Mar-a-Lago, they stole my three passports. One expired along with everything else. He posted on his Truth Social account. This is an assault on a, pol- a political opponent at a level never seen before in our country. End quote. Well, during the search, FBI agents seized classified records, including some marked as top secret. Trump is disputing the classification of those records, saying that they had been declassified. Um, uh, again, it's difficult to know what's true and what's uh, being implied, what's exaggerated and what's not, whether or not it was entirely appropriate or inappropriate, the manner in which those documents were retrieved. And we're continuing to uh, follow the story as more information might be made available to clarify some of those um, accusations of politicization of the FBI and the attorney general's office. Again, well, do I want to do this with uh, Andrew McCarthy? Let, Let me just quote Andrew McCarthy further in a column that he wrote saying that Trump's privilege claims are beside the point. And again, I'm, I'm quoting of the attorney. Um, Andrew McCarthy. He says, as with a myriad other controversies ignited by Donald's Trump norm breaking and irate norm breaking with which it inspires his opponents to respond, the Mar-a-Lago, don't you dare call it a raid, has reached peak farce. First, it emerged over the weekend, as it were uh, stunning news that some of the documents seized in the FBI search of Trump's estate may have been covered by the attorney client and executive privilege. Then the former president issued a statement on his Truth Social platform claiming that the FBI knowingly should not have taken this privileged material and respectfully request that these documents be returned to the location from which they were taken. Okay, we need to back up the truck here. The location from which these documents were taken was at least originally the White House. Then President Trump brought them with him to Mar-a-Lago when he left office. What the FBI did last week was retrieve them. I know this was at least four Trump news cycles ago, so it feels like ancient history. But the original fact from which all else flows is that classified or not, the documents at issue are government records. Even if they are subject to legitimate privilege claims, the documents are still the property of the United States. Again, quoting from Andrew McCarthy. So, of course, the FBI took privileged documents from Mar-a-Lago to repeat what I laid out uh, over the weekend, the warrant that the Bureau executed, apparently uh, rather approved by a federal district court in Florida, authorized the agents to take every shred of paper generated during the four years of the Trump presidency that it could find. Since presidential administrations produce mounds of work product covered by the executive uh, and or attorney client privilege, 
uh, privileges over a four-year term, the search was always likely to result in the seizure of at least some privileged material. Let's keep our eye on the ball. When evaluating the Justice Department's behavior in this situation, the question we should ask is, did the government officials go to... Uh, too far in the method by which they reclaimed presidential records. Was the impasse between the DOJ lawyers and Trump's lawyers really so serious, so dire that the Justice Department and FBI needed to get involved? Was it really necessary to turn a conflict between the National Archives and a former president into a criminal law controversy and for the first time in history, search the residence of a former president? In other words, the issue is not whether Trump committed a wrong, but whether the government's actions were a, um, a proportional response to that wrong. Trump was unquestionably in violation of the law. And again, this is the um, former federal prosecutor, Andy McCarthy, trying to put some of this into perspective. In other news, Representative Jim Jordan, he's a Republican out of Ohio, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, said on Sunday that 14 FBI agents have come to his office as whistleblowers in the wake of the FBI raid on former President Trump's home, telling us this is baloney, what's going on. That's a quote. When asked what the reaction would be if the FBI agent investigating Hunter Biden was as biased against him as former FBI agent Peter Strzok was against Trump, he told Fox News Sunday in America with Trey Gowdy that there would be no other news uh, that you would see. We all know the answer to that question. We all know... Uh, Wasn't that the response uh, to that rhetoric question, but understand the template here. And I'm quoting the template never changes with these guys. The left creates a lie. Big media, mainstream press reports the lie. Big tech amplifies the lie. And then they try to tell the truth. They call us names and try to cancel us and tell us the world, uh, tell the world we're the ones not being squared with them. He went on to say, and that was a quote. So the country, though, the good news is they figured it out. And I tell you. Uh, Who else figured it out? Trey and you and John with your background in law enforcement appreciate this, the congressman went on to say. Now, Jordan added that 14 FBI agents have come to our office as whistleblowers and they are good people. There are a lot of good people in the FBI. It's the top. That's the problem. But some of these good agents are coming to us telling us this um, was going on. The political nature now of the Justice Department. God bless them for doing it. Coming, taking, uh, coming talking to us about the school board issue, about a whole host of issues, the congressman said. It's becoming a well-worn trail of agents who say this has got to stop and thank goodness for them and the American people recognize it. And I believe they're going to make a big change on November 8th. Well, this is one politician observing um, what FBI agents, he says, 14 of whom have been to his office. Now, it sounds to me like they're not all talking about what happened at Mar-a-Lago, but Uh, over a period of time. Um, So a lot of controversy around the leadership of the FBI and whether or not they're straight shooting on this and other issues. Uh, And Andrew McCarthy went on to suggest that the uh, uh, the investigation was really about January 6th and not about the documents, as uh, was alleged by the FBI and the Department of the Justice Department. Lots to try to understand and sort through. We'll Continue in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with James Spencer. He's the president of D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. It is a devotional, and it's available to you free of charge by download. We'll talk more about that later in the program. Well, the Justice Department is investigating the Southern Baptist Convention over abuse of the SBC. Uh, The executive committee confirmed on Friday that the Justice Department has initiated an investigation into the convention and that the investigation will include multiple SPC entities. Well, the general counsel for the executive committee that oversees day-to-day business for the convention and was the subject of the uh, SPC's own abuse investigation said the uh, EC, the executive committee, has received a subpoena, but no individuals have been subpoenaed at this point. The Southern Baptist Convention and its entities have committed to cooperating with that investigation. A statement signed by the president of the uh, denomination's entity and seminary referred their involvement as part of their ongoing uh, commitment to transparency and abuse reform. While we continue to grieve and lament past mistakes related to sexual abuse, current leaders across the SBC have demonstrated a firm conviction to address those issues of the past and are implementing measures to ensure that they never are repeated in the future. An independent investigation by Guidepost Solutions into the uh, executive committee released in May found that over the past 20 years, its leaders had compiled a secret list of more than 700 pastors that had mishandled um, their congregants. They were abusive. They mishandled allegations and mistreated the victims who asked for help. The investigation that cost about $2 million spanned 330 interviews and five terabytes of documents collected over eight months. Hours before the executive committee confirmed the Justice Department's inquiry, a blogger, Ben Cole, tweeted that federal investigators had sought to uh, sought the unredacted version of the report and had begun issuing grand jury subpoenas. The uh, executive committee's general counsel declined to comment further on their discussions with the federal investigators as the investigation is ongoing. It's not yet clear what potential or suspected crimes they're looking into. The Department of Justice writes on its website, child sexual abuse matters are generally handled by local and state authorities and not the federal government. So there are some questions as to what they're specifically looking to do. But the Department of Justice has looked into church abuse before. It started investigative abusive Catholic priests in Pennsylvania in 2018 following a state of uh, grand jury. At the time, the Washington Post wrote that the decision to launch such a probe, even one limited to a single state, is noteworthy because the federal government has long shied away from responding to allegations of church cover up. The abuse issue, however, garnered attention in Southern Baptist circles later, thanks to the public witness of survivors and reports by media, uh, including the Houston Chronicle. It came to the front to the forefront after the hashtag Me Too and hashtag Church Two took off. Um, at its uh, June annual meeting, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to adopt reforms, including launching an official database of credible, uh, credible accused uh, pastors, a tool they hope will prevent abusers from uh, moving between churches. We'll try to follow that story as more and if more information is made available. Well, after the Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, President Joe Biden directed his administration to find ways to provide increased access to abortions. 
Well, that included potentially funneling taxpayer dollars to transport women and girls who live in states with stricter abortion laws across state lines into states with more lenient ones. This is really interesting to me. Since Roe versus Wade uh, became law under the edict of the Supreme Court, suggesting there was a constitutional right to abortion, the pro-life movement banded together and out of their own pockets and out of their own resources dedicated hundreds of thousands, I would go so far as to say millions of dollars, in the service of women who are seeking uh, information about their pregnancy and to carry their children to term. But on the other side, it's immediately taxpayer dollars that are going to provide the transportation for women who are seeking abortion in places more favorable to the practice. Well, the president's August 3rd, 2022 executive order, securing access to reproductive and other health care services, directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to consider action to advance access to reproductive health care. I'm loath to refer to it in that way, but I'm quoting, including through Medicaid for patients who travel out of state for reproductive health care services. Now, it's not really health care service because the two patients don't emerge healthier. In fact, neither of them does if you take what happens seriously. And while this order will create some drama and headlines, it won't change the underlying prohibition on using federal funds for abortion. For over 45 years, the Hyde Amendment, writer to the Department of Labor, uh, the Department of Labor, the Department of Health and Human Services Appropriations Act, prohibits federal funding of abortion, has applied to all programs funded by the Department of Health and Human Services, including Medicaid. And if the federal government is prohibited from paying for services, it cannot pay for transportation costs to get to the service either. Now, despite this clear prohibition under the executive order, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will likely be pressed to see how far the Secretary of Health and Human Services can use his authority to flout the law or to impose the law under Section 1115. to waive certain provisions of the law to achieve the order's goal. Well, using Medicaid to pay for traveling to Medicaid uh, to medical care is not new. For example, a Medicaid enrollee that lives in um, rural county in state A may already cross over state lines to a larger city in state B to receive medical care. So that's already prohibited. Medicaid also requires the federal government and states share of the, in the cost of providing non-emergency transportation to medically necessary services covered under a state's Medicaid plan. Now, this can mean Medicaid may, under individual circumstances, pay for fuel, lodging and meals for enrollees, including for family member overnight stays. However, coverage for out-of-state travel is not automatic. The Medicaid agency typically requires documentation that the service cannot be rendered by a provider enrolled in the patient's home state. And also the out-of-state provider must become enrolled in the originating state's Medicaid program. Now, the first avenue, an obstacle, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services will likely be pressed to consider uh, with this new executive order is who would cover the costs. And again, under the Hyde Amendment, federal funds cannot be used for abortion directly or for services surrounding the practice either. So we'll continue to follow this executive director that essentially permits um, the violation of the law in order for uh, women who are seeking abortions in other places to secure them with federal funding. Well, some of the 87,000 new agents whom the Democrats propose to hire at the Internal Revenue Service could come with some 
extra firepower. On Friday, as mentioned, House Democrats gave their final passage to the tax and spending bill they dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act, which, among other things, would double the size of the Internal Revenue Service with 87,000 new agents to beef up enforcement. Well, as of two years ago, the IRS had an arsenal of 4,600 guns, reported Open the Books, a government watchdog group. Well, two federal investigations into past uh, the past decade found that IRS agents had not been sufficiently trained and were accident prone with weapons that they already have. Armed IRS raids on nonviolent taxpayers surfaced as a concern almost 25 years ago during a Senate hearing. Well, the Democrats bill that the Senate passed on Sunday awaits the signature of the president. That's expected any day now. Uh, should it be clear the uh, the um, uh, the president's. Uh, signature, which it's expected to. The legislation unwinds from 2023 to 2031. It would devote $80 billion to expand the IRS and boosting tax revenue to pay for the green energy subsidies and other pet projects. Americans for Tax Reform, a conservative group that opposes the legislation, assembled information about the IRS arsenal from the government and media reports. Well, during the House floor debate on Friday, this is last Friday, Representative Lauren Boebert, a Republican out of Colorado, raised concern about arming IRS agents. This bill has new IRS agents and they are armed. And the job description tells them that they need to be required to carry a firearm and expect to use deadly force if necessary. That's a quote from um, Representative Boebert. Excessive taxation is theft. You are using the power of the federal government for armed robbery on the taxpayers, end quote. Well, Representative John Yarmuth, a Democrat from Kentucky, suggested that no IRS agents are armed. The idea that they are armed, I know that uh, Ms. Bobart would like everyone to be armed, but that's not what IRS agents do, Yarmouth said. I would implore my Republican colleague to cut out these scare tactics, quit making things up. Well, in a posted job opening for a special agent, the IRS specified that applicants, and this is a quote, should be willing and able to participate in arrests, execution of search warrants and other dangerous assignments and able to carry a firearm and be willing to use deadly force if necessary, end quote. Well, after sparking some controversy amid the proposed expansion of the agency, the IRS deleted willing uh, to use deadly force from the job description. The IRS uh, referred questions to the Treasury Department as to whether the arsenal would increase as the number of personnel uh, multiplies. The Treasury uh, Department rather didn't immediately respond to requests for comment, but there are some pretty... um, Important and key things uh, to be known about the Internal Revenue Service and the use of weapons. We'll talk about them in just a few moments when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with James Spencer. Dr. Spencer is president of the D.L. Moody Center and author most recently of a devotional available to you online, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We're talking about the Internal Revenue Service and whether or not the 87,000 new agents will be armed or a portion of them and what the relationship with the IRS and guns and ammo is. Well, first of all, the current IRS workforce includes 78,661 full-time employees. 
Uh, So the legislation would more than double the agency's employees. A 2020 report from Open the Books titled The Militarization of the U.S. Executive Agencies shows that the IRS Criminal Investigation Division has a stockpile of 4,600 guns. Now, is that unusual? Is this something new? Is, have they used weapons in the past? The firearms include 3,282 pistols, 621 shotguns, rifles, fully automatic firearms, and four revolvers, according to the report. The Government Accountability Office, a federal watchdog agency, reported in 2018 that the IRS had 3.1 million rounds of ammunition for pistols and revolvers. The agency had 1.4 million rounds of ammunition for rifles, the GAO reported, along with 367,000 shotguns, rounds, and so on. Now, is this reason for concern, or is this just a matter of course? Another point they make is that the armed agents are not properly trained. The IRS National Criminal Investigation Training Academy has a responsibility to implement firearms training and a related qualification program nationwide. However, IRS agents assigned to the Criminal Investigation Division regularly fail to stay up to date with uh, training or to report incidents of improper firearm use, according to a report in 2018. The Inspector General's report noted that there's no national-level review of firearms training records to ensure that all special agents meet the qualification requirements. Special agents not properly trained in the use of firearms could endanger the public as well as their fellow special agents. Now, it's interesting that this is being brought up in light of the increasing numbers of agents that we'll see over the next 10 years. Is this an issue, again, that we ought to be uh, concerned about? More unintended discharges than intended one. Um, Another point uh, being made in the report, the poor firearms training of agents has led to more accidental firings than intentional firings, according to a special inspector general report. And that is from 2012. Has it improved since then? That's an open question as far as I'm concerned. Having the availability of deadly force puts uh, hiring so many new agents into perspective. Grover Norquist, who's the president of Americans for Tax Reform, says the inspector general for tax administration found they fired their guns more times by accident than on purpose. I'm not sure that's um, good or bad. The poor training was not a new problem since 2012. The report from the inspector general found similar issues with firearms training and there is sufficient oversight. Special agents in possession of firearms who are not properly trained and qualified could endanger other special agents and the public, the report said. Uh, It uh, not only found that IRS agents fired their weapons by accident more times than uh, the intended, but that the agency concealed details about the accidental discharged. And finally, the IRS history of armed raids. In 1998, the Senate Finance Committee held investigative um, hearings into IRS abuses. This is 1998, so this is a while ago, that featured testimony from a, a Virginia restaurant owner. The owner said that Armed IRS agents with drug-sniffing dogs burst into his restaurant during breakfast hours and ordered customers to get out. Agents took his cash register and records. The restaurant owner told the Senate committee when he returned home, he found that his door had been kicked open and his residence had been raided. The tax preparer from Oklahoma gave similar testimony, saying that about 15 armed IRS agents came into his business and harassed his clients. The owner of a Texas oil company recounted that agents uh, came to his office and told employees, remove your hands from the uh, keyboards and back away from the computer. And remember, we're armed. 
Well, in, in each case, the agents came up empty handed. The Washington Post reported at the time the Democrat and Republican lawmakers alike expressed dismay and that the Clinton administration. So this tells you just how long ago this was. The Clinton administration's IRS uh, commissioner promised an investigation of such actions. Well, as a separate hearing uh, that year before the same Senate committee, the Treasury Department's inspector general told senators that the IRS had tolerated car thefts and anonymous uh, bullying, uh, promoting an agent accused of sexual harassment and allowing agents to conduct armed raids on nonviolent taxpayers. Now, again, this is dated back in 1998. The concern is with a growing number of agents, is that going to be a concern to be added to the list? I can't answer that question, but I thought it was interesting that was brought up in a recent hearing in Congress and then uh, a sort of a watchdog group uh, brought it up in a report as well. I wish I had the answer to the question, but I don't. Well, healthcare workers who were fired over vaccine mandate have been awarded $10 million in a settlement. Illinois healthcare workers who were fired, impacted by their um, hospitals, uh, uh, will receive a $10 million settlement after filing a lawsuit challenging the rule. Let this case be a warning to employers that violating Title VII, Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, pointed out. The group beheld the, that uh, behind the lawsuit told the Washington Examiner, it is especially significant and gratifying that this first class-wide COVID settlement protects health care workers. You know, they used to be our heroes before they were considered to be fiends. Uh, the case centers around workers at North Shore University Health System, who filed a lawsuit on October 2021 claiming their employer illegally refused to grant any religious exemption to a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. The settlement approved by the Illinois Northern District Court will result in 473 employees of the system becoming eligible for compensation for being denied a religious exemption to the vaccine mandate. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got... Uh, News and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And also in the second hour, a conversation with James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of a new devotional they're offering free of charge, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. You can download that online and we'll give you more details in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in the next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God. It's an eight-week um, devotional made available by the D.L. Moody Center, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. So that's coming up in our next couple of segments. Also, today is the one-year anniversary of uh, losing Afghanistan. We'll reflect on that later in the program as well. Well, threatening civil war, the FBI is a warning of a dirty bomb threat and increasing calls for violence as the Mar-a-Lago raid fallout mounts. I hope you're praying for our country because violent outrage seems to be the response to everything these days. On blame and accusations, an Iranian government official has made the country's first public comment on the vicious Salman Rushdie attack. An Iranian government official claimed Monday that Tehran was not involved in the recent attack on author Salman Rushdie, who was stabbed in New York ahead of a scheduled speech. In Iran's first public comments addressing the assault, the country's foreign minister said that Iran should not be accused of any involvement. 
Rushdie was stabbed multiple times before a speech in Chautauqua Institute in New York on Friday. The attacker allegedly rushed onto the stage and stabbed him. Rushdie underwent surgery at a local hospital. He suffered a damaged liver, severe nerves um, severed in his arm and an eye. His agent said that he will likely lose the injured eye. The alleged attacker, 24-year-old, has uh, pled not guilty to charges related to the assault. Rushdie has uh, lived under a threat of a fatwa on his life. After Iran's uh, late supreme leader, Ayatollah Ruloa Khomeini, condemned his book, The Satanic Verses, as blasphemy, that was back in 1989, and called the author's um, called for the author's death. The book was also banned in Iran. The fatwa is a decree between, or rather from the Islamic religious leader. Iran has offered more than $3 million for anyone who kills Rushdie. Well, the government today has distanced itself from Khomeini's decree, but Rushdie still faces opposition. A semi-official Iranian religious foundation raised a bounty in 2012 from 2.8 to $3.3 million. Citing a failure of leadership, House Republicans vowed to get answers on Biden's Afghanistan failure. <clears throat> Dark money moves, emails reveal disturbing details about how Leonardo DiCaprio helped fund climate nuisance lawsuits. DiCaprio's nonprofit foundation awarded grants to a dark money group, which in turn funneled money to a law firm spearheading climate nuisance lawsuits nationwide. Saying this is despicable, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken condemns Iran for inciting the attack on Salman Rushdie and abused from the beginning. Senator Rand Paul calls for the repeal of the Espionage Act following the FBI raid on former President Trump's Florida estate. Trends toward autocracy and MSNBC historian pleads with the audience vote as if your life depends on it because it might. The narrative, of course, if you vote Republican, you'll die. 1984, again, ABC John Carl cites CBO report asking Corinne Jean-Pierre if the Inflation Reduction Act is Orwellian. Digging for dirt, a former uh, attorney general says the FBI raid was an attempt to tie Trump to the January 6th criminal activity. Of course, we can't know that at this point. The former U.S. attorney Michael Mukasey criticized the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago as an attempt to take down former President Trump or at least prevent him from running for re-election. On Sunday Morning Futures, Mukasey highlighted the inconsistencies between the messaging from the Department of Justice and FBI and the documents taken during the early morning raid. Mukasey said, I think it's an attempt to find evidence tying President Trump to some of the violent events or criminal events that took place on January 6th. And I don't know whether that's uh, what they found, but the fact is that the 45 separate items that they seized, 11 Uh, had any classified markings at all, and uh, only one had the top classification marking, and those were all marked as of the date that they left the White House, which was more than a year and a half before uh, this took place. So uh, we don't know whether they would still be regarded as classified and all the others. There are absolutely no such markings, and there are no such categories, and there are boxes of material, binders, individual documents, 45 separate items, that they list on the receipt. Well, again, there are lots of unanswered questions. And unless the affidavit is made available, which the FBI is resisting for legal reasons, we may not know unless there are indictments forthcoming. Is the U.S. economy on the cusp of a recession? According to the Bank of America's newest chief economist, the answer is yes. 
Michael Gappin, the head of the U.S. economics of the Bank of America, said that he expects the Federal Reserve to inadvertently trigger a downturn this year with its war on inflation. This cycle probably ends in a mild downturn, he says. How do I come to that? Well, it's basically just history. It's really hard to achieve a soft landing. Well, five U.S. lawmakers are visiting Taiwan. That's just 12 days after the speaker visited. A delegation of American lawmakers arrived there on Sunday, just 12 days after the brouhaha over the speaker that prompted China to launch days of threatening military drills around the self-governing island that Beijing says must come under its control. The five-member delegation, led by Democrat Senator Ed Markey, Markey rather, of Massachusetts, We'll meet presidents, um, the president there and other officials, as well as members of the private sector to discuss sharing interests, including reducing tensions in Taiwan Strait and investments in semiconductors. The Democrat inflation bill funds abortion in violation of the Hyde Amendment. We spoke a bit about that earlier in the program. And the Idaho Supreme Court was voted or has voted in favor of a total abortion ban. In a 3-2 decision Friday, the Supreme Court there allowed the state's total abortion ban to take effect, as well as a Texas-style heartbeat law that allows relatives of an unborn child to sue abortion providers for up to $20,000, while legal challenges uh, to both laws are ongoing. Arizona has begun constructing a wall on its U.S.-Mexico border without President Biden's permission. The state of Arizona will not wait for the administration to build a border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border and instead has chosen to go it alone, erecting its own state-funded barrier uh, to stop an unprecedented flow of illegal migrants coming into the state. Rand Paul is looking to abolish the Espionage Act, it's a long past time to repeal this egregious affront to the First Amendment, he says. Well, Trump lawyers have requested the FBI return any files covered by the attorney-client privilege. And the White House sought to silence a critic on Twitter. No matter which side you fall on, this is pretty scary. It's reported that Subtract writer Alex uh, Berenson shared internal communications from Twitter that revealed the White House inquired about why his account had not been banned, according to findings from his lawsuit with the tech giant. Berenson announced last uh, month that he and Twitter reached a mutually acceptable resolution that prompted his Twitter account to be reinstated. As the Afghanistan withdrawal anniversary approaches, the president's evacuation is being critiqued. Salman Rushdie is off the ventilator but still battles serious injury. And the World Health Organization is moving to change the name of monkeypox to avoid being racist. Now, the fact that you would make that link tells me you probably are. Didn't occur to me. I'm a black girl. The House passed President Biden's tax and spend bill. And the government is stealthily taking our health insurance. Alec Baldwin did, in fact, pull the trigger. That's according to an FBI investigation into the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, an actor, uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, on the set of the film Rust, uh, determined that the gun in question, a 45 Colt uh, single action revolver, could not have made uh, been made to fire without pulling the trigger. Cartel mayhem in Mexico is highlighting the need for a secure border. And President Trump is under investigation for violating the Espionage Act. In a new twist in the FBI raid, President Trump had a standing order to declassify documents taken to his residence. The Louisiana Supreme Court has denied an appeal challenging an abortion ban. And the U.S. should give Taiwan every tool it needs to block a Chinese takeover, according to former Secretary of State and potential 2024 Republican presidential candidate, 
Mike Pompeo. And the Biden administration is reportedly launched an investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention. We need to take a break here at the top of the hour. But before we do, on this day in history, one little boy was born. His name was Sam Maupin. Happy birthday, Sam. We'll be back. Thank you. Oh, by the way, James Spencer, President D.L. Mui Center, will join us to talk about the devotional Useful to God. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bible warns believers very clearly about the dangers of wealth. Even secular sources acknowledge the pitfalls of greed. The University of California, Berkeley, released a report, and it states, psychologists who studied the impact of wealth and inequality on human behavior have found that money can powerfully influence our thoughts and actions in ways that we're often unaware of, no matter our economic circumstance. Research is uncovering how wealth impacts our sense of morality, our relationships with others, and our mental health. Well, that's one of the subjects that's being covered in Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections Inspired by D.L. Moody. The D.L. Moody Center is uh, their latest devotional, addresses the issues like wealth and greed from a unique biblical perspective. It's week five in an eight-week study, free from the love of money. Well, Dr. James Spencer uses Job 31, verses 24 and 28, as a way to discuss the purposes of money in a Christian life, They're to uh, use in service of God rather than self-serving. Well, that subject and many others are covered in this great devotional. Well, here to talk with us about that is James Spencer. He is a theologian and Christian leader who helps individuals and organizations ask and answer the necessary questions so that they can move forward from where they are to where God wants us, wants them to be. He earned his Ph.D. in theological studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, serves as an administrator and leader in Christian higher education. He continues to consult with Christian colleges and seminaries, as well as nonprofit organizations to help them build stronger organizational capacity. He currently serves as president of D.L. Moody Center, an independent nonprofit organization inspired by the life and ministry of Dwight Moody and dedicated to proclaiming the gospel and challenging God's uh, call to follow Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to talking about this uh, devotional that's available to our listeners. Dr. Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a real joy to have you. I want to begin sort of at the beginning and not assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the D.L. Moody Center, and for that matter, D.L. Moody. So let's start at the beginning, and maybe you can give us sure. a bit of background. Sure. Dwight Moody was a 19th century evangelist. He traveled uh, the United States and really uh, large portions of the world proclaiming the gospel. Um, he also started three schools, two in Northfield, Massachusetts, a small town in Western Mass. Uh, Northfield Seminary for Girls, and Mount Hermon School for Boys. And those were more like boarding schools for teenage boys and girls who couldn't afford an education otherwise. And then he started the Chicago Bible Institute, which is now the Moody Bible Institute. Mm -hmm. Um, He also held summer conferences uh, on the property that D.L. Moody Center owns and operates in Northfield, Mass. And these summer conferences were designed to just invite Christians of all different sorts of denominations and perspectives to come together for worship, for prayer, for Bible study, and to discern the Holy Spirit. And D.L. Moody really believed that when he brought Christians together to do those four things, that God would do great things through them. 
And so the D.L. Moody Center is an organization that is dedicated to echoing that message, to um, continuing that work, and to really convening, challenging, and, uh, and encouraging Christians to proclaim the gospel uh, through word and deed. I that's, appreciate- what, uh, that's what we do. I appreciate that the in the description of the D.L. Moody Center, it's a destination for spiritual renewal, and you work in right. concert with local churches, and um, that's that's such uh, a, a needed partnership for local churches, many of which struggle with resource. So this is a tremendous opportunity for very the much. church. Yeah, very much, and we we really enjoy hosting, uh, you know, smaller churches, smaller men's retreats, smaller women's retreats. Um, it's been great to have the facilities to just um, provide low-cost accommodations and a nice, quiet place for those groups to get together and really um, pray, worship, study, and uh, think about where the Holy Spirit is leading them together. Mm. And it's wonderful to be able to get away for a moment to really reflect on those things. <laughs> That's we're, right. We're talking today about a resource that you've recently produced, Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections Inspired by D.L. Moody. And it's part of the Shine Bright 365 um, effort. Can you describe the uh, devotional and the Shine Bright movement, if you will? Sure. So the devotional is really based on a book that we recently published called Useful to God. And Useful to God is, uh, is, was really a, a modernization of a book written by a gentleman named R.A. Torrey, who was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And he wrote a book called Why God Used D.L. Moody and listed seven characteristics um, that he felt made D.L. Moody useful to God. And so the book contains seven of those characteristics in addition, and one uh, additional characteristic that I've added. Um, and we've sort of updated that text and, and made it more accessible for a modern audience. And the goal is really to alert Christians to the fact that, you know, we focus on who we are in Christ. God is going to be able to do many more things through us than if we just focus on what it is that we're doing on a daily basis. And so we need to cultivate these characteristics in us in the same way that D.L. Moody cultivated these characteristics in himself. The, the Shine Bright 365 campaign is really in line with that. What we're doing there is we're trying to get Christians to understand that we're to be doers of God's Word. And we're not just supposed to learn. Discipleship is not just about learning or education. It's about learning to obey, learning to observe all Christ commanded. And so the Shine Bright 365 campaign provides exercises and disciplines for Christians to walk into on a daily basis that will lead them toward a more faithful witness to Jesus Christ. How are we doing in general um, as the body of Christ and being useful to God? And, and perhaps we should take a moment to describe what does it mean to be useful to God? Yeah, I think when D.L. Moody used the term, what he was really trying to convey was each individual Christian surrendering their own ambitions to the Lord and following after him in all things that they did. Uh, one of the things that's written in the Northfield Seminary for Girls Handbook that I found uh, compelling and helpful was they encouraged the students to read their Bibles. And uh, the way they phrase it is like this. They say, we want students to experimentally test the meaning and value of the scriptures by doing God's word. And, and I think that that is really where... Um, the modern-day church needs to sort of get back to doing that. We need to get back to just doing the basics of the faith, focusing in on who we're supposed to be in Christ, doing these small, 
what I would what I would consider sort of the foolish activities in the eyes of the world: prayer, worship, uh, community together, serving, um, caring for the poor, caring for those who are on the fringes of society. These are things that um, are odd and strange and mark us out as as Christ followers in unique and important ways. And so the extent to which the church is doing that, I think, varies. I think some of it is um, many times we just don't hear the really good stories that are, are sort of out there. And so my sense is that the, the church overall is doing more of this than we often see, because we tend to get a little bit too involved in the scandals and the bad stuff. Um, but the reality is that uh, I, I would say New England is a fantastic microcosm of this. You know, New England has the impression that the church is sort of spiritually dead. And yet, as we work in New England, what we continue to uncover is um, the faithful Christian groups, small groups of Christian people who are just embattled. They're continuing the good fight. They're doing things on a small scale, Ten-year uh, prayer movements, small discipleship movements. And these, these Christians are pushing forward in the right ways. They're there. They're just not as prominent as some of the other things that we often see going on. And so I, I have a tendency to believe that the church is in better shape than maybe mm-hmm. we think it is. And, uh, and, and that part of what we need to do is start focusing on the positive things that we're doing as believers and as a body of believers so that we can really motivate ourselves and, and continue the good work that, that seems to be going on already. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and we have a reputation here as well. But I do know yeah. that the church is at work and moving and people are faithfully praying and serving. So you're absolutely right. We may have an impression of what uh, the church is or isn't doing, but we know the scripture says the gates of hell is not going to prevail against the church. That's right. And when we decide as individuals and corporately as the community of faith, when we decide that we're going to faithfully honor God, he's going to move in ways that aren't going to make the headlines here in the Oregonian <laughs> Um, but God is at work. He's he's faithful to every generation and will use those who faithfully serve him. Now, I mentioned one subject, free from the love of money, and I want to kind of plant, uh, plant ourselves there um, when we come back from the break. But this really covers, as you mentioned, a number of subjects, and they're divided into, I believe it's eight weeks, surrendered, yeah. prayerful, studious, humble, free from the love of money, consumed with passion for the lost, rather than just critiquing the lost, imbued with power from on high and undistracted. This is a great study intended for what period of time? It's intended to be over eight weeks, Mm -hmm. um, but obviously people can take as much time as they need. We recognize that, you know, going through any one of those topics may take you a a month um, to really start to get into it and master it. And so um, it is designed for eight weeks, but uh, folks should take as much time as they need to really master those uh, disciplines. Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. James Spencer. He is president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. And I should mention, he's the author of several uh, books. We're just talking about the one a devotional today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. James Spencer. He's president of the D.L. Moody Center. He's also the author of a new devotional, which, by the way, is free and available to you online, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. 
and I'm so grateful for this resource. I wanted to spend some time talking about one area that you cover in this devotional to give our listeners perhaps some idea of the depth and breadth of what they might expect. And that's the chapter that has to do with the love of money. We are just emerging from a pandemic. We're in the midst of a season of inflation, economic downturn, high prices. And our attention is rightly focused on the challenge, but it's entirely possible for us as Americans to have our focus in uh, in such a way that it is contrary to what God intends for us. Talk a little bit about the subject of free being free from the love of money and why this made the devotional. Yeah, I, I think part of why I made the devotional was, you know, D.L. Moody had a way about running ministry that he, uh, Ari Torrey phrases it like this, um, millions of dollars came through D.L. Moody's hands, but none of it stuck to his fingers. And so he allowed money to flow through his hands into his ministry and really had no particular concern about how much wealth he was amassing. In fact, on his deathbed, he tells his uh, family, um, I've always been an ambitious man, ambitious not to leave you with many, much wealth or with, uh, or with a lot of assets, but with much work to do. And I, I think that there's something that we need to learn from that. I think that we often get a little bit too obsessed with our financial situation, and that is not to diminish the very real needs that people have. But the reality is that um, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And our lives are not governed by how much money we make, how much money we save, how much money we earn, or how much money we may earn. Um, they're governed by how well we can walk obediently with the Lord. And so I I think there's a reason that Paul equates greed with idolatry. Um, And I I think part of that is that, um, you know, we really can't serve God and manna all at the same time. We, We truly have to make a choice. And if we're going to choose God, then the anxieties about money, the fear about money, the fear about our daily needs have to sit, go become secondary because truly we are supposed to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness so that God will give all those other things to us. I think at this season there's a lot of fear surrounding money. What What's the future going to hold in terms of the economy? Um, you use Job 31, verses 24 through 28 as a way to discuss the purpose of money in a Christian's life. Can you talk a little bit about that and where we place concern about decisions others are making about uh, whether or not the money we do have is going to be enough? Should we look to Washington or in this case, Salem, where our capital is for the kind of security that most of us want? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an appropriateness to looking to the government for um, some level of security. God puts the government in place, and so we don't want to completely discount the government. I think where we make our mistake is that we supplant the gift and the giver. Mm. And, uh, you know, when the government becomes something that supplants God, that we forget that God is the one who has given the government to us. And when the government can't provide, we're not out of options because God has limitless possibilities that he is able to use to provide for us. I think that's sort of the the answer to the back half of your question. Um, When we look at the book of Job, I mean, what we see here is Job really very much sort of 
repenting and, and, and kind of saying, you know, listen, if I were if I were trusting in money, if I were trusting in gold, if this is where my confidence was, then there would certainly be iniquity. There would be sin here. But the reality is it's not. It, his trust is not the money. I mean, if you think about what Job went through, he lost everything, uh, almost more than everything, everything but his own life. And uh, he, he still stays faithful to God. He still continues to look to God and say, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I still find you worthy of worship. I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to uh, compromise my beliefs or my integrity here. I'm just going to wait until you reveal what all of the suffering has been about and trust you that even though I've lost everything, things are going to be okay. And, and I think that that's sort of the attitude that we have to start to cultivate, and we need to start to cultivate it in, in two ways. Number one, when we lose things, and I think we're, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, I think we have lost something mm-hmm. as a people and a nation. There's a very real sense of unsettledness that we're dealing with, and that's a loss. Uh, many people have lost their jobs or their homes or their, you know, their, their, their security, their, their weekly paycheck, and those are real losses. And we have to look at those things and say, okay, is God still worthy despite all of these things? And the answer to that needs to be yes for Christians. At the same time, the second part is we also need to look at this in terms of generosity. Is that um, we should not find our security and money to the extent that we are unwilling to give, that we're unwilling to help our brothers and sisters in Christ or just the world at large, because at the end of the day, the money is not what gives us our security. It's always God. And he's provided us with this wealth for a reason. And what we need to be doing is looking with eyes to see and listening with ears to hear. So we understand how to distribute that wealth in a wise manner that is going to glorify him. One of the things you write about is greed. And greed has been elevated to virtually a virtue in our, our culture. Uh, the scripture refers to it as uh, a form of idolatry. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about um, greed and selfishness uh, in, in particular in view of um, economic hard times? What do we deprive ourselves of if we rely solely on what we can produce through our own efforts without um, recognizing the role that God plays in providing for our needs? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, I always go back to Deuteronomy, and I'm, I'm an Old Testament theology guy, so I always go back to Deuteronomy. But um, in Deuteronomy, one of the things that God warns the Israelites about is forgetting God when he has provided them with cisterns that they did not dig and houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. In other words, um, when we get wealth, we somehow begin to think that it is by the strength of our own hand that mm-hmm. we have accumulated it. We forget that it's a gift from God, that it's something he's given us. And I think the biggest danger for us when we think about greed as idolatry, that there, that is an important and real um, equation that Paul makes there. Uh, because when we forget God, we begin to worship money. And what that has, the implications that that has are, are almost endless. Um, because as we begin to worship money, what we realize is that we have to work to get more of it. Money is not a kind master, in other words. Um, it sort of makes demands on us that God doesn't really make. Um, and, and I think within the context of, of 
you know, biblical theology, one of the things that I would say is money never gives us time to rest. Money never really gives us time to worship God. It's an mm. endless cycle of production, and we become cogs in a machine without really even knowing it. But when we worship God, when that is the focal point of who we are, when we, when we trust and love and find our security in Him, when we remember Him as opposed to forgetting Him, He gives us rest. He gives us peace. And it's not that there's no work or effort in that. It's that the work and effort that we put in is, is sort of uh, empowered by God. It, it's, uh, he gives us a peace that surpasses our understanding. And so um, that, to me, is the real distinction between working for God and working for money. The two just aren't equal masters, because God can provide so much more beyond what money could ever provide for us. And so when we work for money, we're really working for a secondary master, and ultimately we're becoming slaves to it in a way that um, diminishes who we are as human beings. Mm. So on the one hand, we have the option of contentment, and on the other hand, slavery. That's right. Seems like a pretty yeah. clear choice to me, but sometimes we struggle making the right one. Well, I am it's so delighted. Yeah, yeah. I'm so delighted with the devotional that we've been talking about. We focused on one area, but there are eight areas. Becoming useful to God, biblical reflections inspired by D.L. Moody. How can our listeners uh, download a copy? So they can just go. This is a free resource that we're offering. It's uh, moodycenter.org backslash useful to God. And all they do is go in, fill in their name uh, and email, and they can download a free copy of it at moodycenter.org backslash useful to God. I'll make sure we put that uh, information on our online resource, the Facebook page, and also the station page, kpdq.com. Thank you so much for your leadership um, at the, uh, the center and for taking the time to put the devotional together and to talk with us about it here today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections, inspired by D.L. Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, I want to remind you that it's this weekend. We're talking about Fish Fest. If you don't yet have your tickets, you want more information, all you need to do is go to kpdq.com. And I want to let you in on a little secret. James Blend, who's the producer of this program, really is largely the producer of Fish Fest in that he coordinates all the important details. Sam Moppin, who happens to be the engineer of this program, is going to be responsible for um, managing, what is that thing called? It's the... um, the drone. I can never think of the name of a drone. Anyway, he's going to be managing the drone at the event. So if you happen to see a guy with a stick kind of looking up, that's probably Sam. And you might want to say <laughs> say hello. Anyway, that's all coming up this Saturday, Fish Fest in Salem. All the important details at kpdq.com. Now's a great time to get your tickets and plan on enjoying what will be a great weekend weather-wise and a great weekend music-wise as well. So kpdq.com. Fish Fest Portland is back. Well, it was one year ago today. Kabul fell to the Taliban. It is such a sad, tragic series of events that could have been avoided. It's difficult to reflect back. The loss of the capital of Afghanistan to the very enemies Americans spent untold blood and treasure to defeat 
was incredibly demoralizing and disastrous, even if few people could articulate why American troops should remain on the ground there. It was popular for the American troops to be withdrawn. That was what the public seemed to suggest they wanted. How to go about it, however, was where we lost out. Losing Afghanistan was a blow to U.S. national security and credibility. And the blame for that shameful surrender and retreat, as well as the fallout in the last year, lands on the desk of our president. Well, as Biden's former boss, Barack Obama, so artfully put it, don't underestimate Joe's ability to, well, I'll put it more delicately, mess things up, end quote. Well, today we can clearly see that uh, predictions have come true. The Taliban is brutally oppressing the Afghan people once again. Al-Qaeda jihadists are back in their old safe haven, even if the president did approve a strike that killed Al-Qaeda co-founder and leader Ayman al-Zawahiri earlier this month. No doubt time to offset the political damage he knew was coming. That strike, however, is also a pretty grim reminder that after 13 U.S. service members and nearly 170 Afghans were killed in a terrorist strike during the withdrawal because Team Biden relied on the Taliban for security, all the president did in retaliation was kill a civilian aid worker and a bunch of children. We were told that there would be justice. The evacuation of Americans and Afghan allies was likewise riddled with incompetence and horror stories. According to the Washington Times, a new GOP report even reveals that First Lady Jill Biden's office went outside the normal channels and begged veterans groups to help find a way to evacuate people having trouble navigating the process. And that speaks volumes. The GOP report It recounts numerous instances in which the administration misled or straight up, well, I'll just keep it at misled, about the effects of the withdrawal. It wasn't just people left behind, but billions of dollars in U.S. military equipment also left behind. Equipment that the Taliban used in a victory parade. It was al-Qaeda and Taliban members imprisoned by the U.S. and released by the re-empowered Taliban. Well, since then, Afghanistan has quickly become a humanitarian tragedy, first and foremost for the Afghan people. Jeff Smith of the Heritage Foundation points out this was entirely predictable. Despite the Taliban's repeated pledges to form an inclusive government that would respect the rights of minorities and women, to have believed them begs many questions. Many of us were very concerned that as soon as the Taliban seized power, Afghanistan would again become a safe haven for international terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda and the Haqqani Network, which is a particularly dangerous and bloodthirsty faction of the Taliban, and one that was responsible for several high-profile attacks on the United States and its personnel in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. As was noted, the Afghan people, especially women, are suffering. According to a report from Amnesty International, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought, the Taliban built a system of repression that discriminates against women and girls in almost every aspect of their lives. And this suffocating crackdown against Afghanistan's female population is increasing day by day. Joe Biden is responsible for allowing that to happen. Afghanistan economy, corrupt and ineffective as it was, has collapsed, uh, collapsed rather, and the nation was thrown right back into the 7th century. The U.N. says roughly half the population is experiencing high and critical levels of acute food insecurity. Joe Biden is, is responsible for allowing that to happen. 
Now, Team Biden doesn't admit that, of course, but Secretary of State Anthony Blinken did acknowledge that the situation is far worse than before. Since the Taliban took over a year ago, they've reversed a great many of the openness and progressive policies that had been made over the previous decades, Blinken said. They've silenced civil society and journalists. In March, they banned independent international media like Voice of America and BBC from airing in Afghanistan. They continue to intimidate and censor Afghan media outlets. So basically, it's like the American media chokehold on free speech. Blinken agreed and added that stifled the, uh, they've stifled the free practice of religion for Muslims and non-Muslims alike. And he added, perhaps most notably, they failed to respect the human rights of women and girls. Under the Taliban, women and girls have largely been erased from public life. There are efforts afoot to pin the blame for this debacle on the previous administration for the deal he struck with the Taliban. The current president certainly acted as if he were bound by that deal. Strangely, the only thing Trump did that supposedly bound Biden. We had our our issues with Trump's deal, but anybody who's got one lick of sense should know that there's no way the former president would have allowed events to proceed, as did the current president. A former defense secretary, Robert Gates, once said that Biden had been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. That's a former defense secretary, Robert Gates. Nowhere is that more painfully obvious than the disaster that he caused in Afghanistan. Now, again, it could have been avoided or certainly aspects of it. The timing of it, not tethered to a singular date, but a a period in which the United States is in charge rather than ceding that and the security uh, to the Taliban. It could have been a very different picture, but it all unveiled one year ago today. I hope you're remembering to pray for the people of Afghanistan as you're praying for the people of Ukraine and other places around the world where violence continues, where oppression is the norm. Uh, We have experienced a level of freedom um, that few have uh, enjoyed in all of human history. We've taken that for granted and may not hold on to it for very much longer. But I hope and pray that we would appreciate what we have at this moment and turn our attention and focus to uh, praying for and providing for the needs of others who would uh, love to be in our shoes right here in America right now. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.